our mission, and we choose to accept it, is zero injuries and zero environmental impact. A healthy workforce and environment is key to our nation's continued success. The Mission Zero podcast is a deep dive with the industry's top experts into the health, safety and environmental aspects of today's workplace. Our mission is to be a platform for new ideas and strategies that, when implemented, will improve our safety, our environment and how we govern out business. We are making the world safer and we're going to have fun doing it. Zero podcast. I am your host, Jeff Peoples. Uh, today, we are continuing our 10-part uh, now series on human trafficking and slavery. Um, as in the past, we've interviewed both survivors and the people fighting human trafficking. Today, I am very blessed to be interviewing an old friend and, a, and, and now a hero of mine, Grant Gildon. Uh, Grant is the Sergeant over Crimes Against Children Unit in Arlington, Texas, PD, and also Tariq. Muslimovich. I get it? Perfect. All right. Uh, he is the sergeant over human exploitation and trafficking for the Arlington, Texas PD. Welcome, guys, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Uh, when you talk, just lean a little. I want to get a little bit closer. Yeah. You? Lean a little bit closer and lean in when you start talking. But uh, thank you guys so much. There's a lot I want to ask you guys. Uh, I think a lot of people would be interested in what you do. Uh, I think a lot of people see TV. Uh, you know, you know, there's certain SVU crime TV shows that have certain things out there. I'm pretty sure it's pretty accurate, but also it's 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 great to hear from real human beings and what they're doing and and and, and everything like that. And uh, like I said beforehand, I, I normally go through and let everybody tell their life stories, but uh, given we got two guys and you've got a uh, major job and, and an important job today, I'm going to go ahead and just say uh, we'll start with you, Grant. Um, I know, I've known you for 25 years. We went to college together. Uh, and so, uh, love you to death. So this is doubly awesome for me, but post-college, I guess we, we can start there. What, um, what did you do when you got out of college and what has your career and how's your, how's your career path led you to, to this position you're doing now? Yeah. After college, after graduating from, from Texas Tech, um, Went into a completely different field, went into to a field I'd gone to college for, and through various circumstances, uh, a few years later, I found myself back in my hometown of Texarkana, Texas, and uh, was having to to take care of, of some family um, issues. Uh, my, I had a father that was sick, and I was back there, and uh, found myself needing a job. And, uh, there, you know, Texarkana at the time, there weren't a lot of jobs and my dad had been a police officer my whole life. It was the one thing I said I would never do, um, was, was to be a police officer, but God hadn't had other intentions for me. And, uh, I went to work for Texarkana, Texas police department and pretty early on in that time, um, that was in 2003 and early on, I, I realized that was going to be my calling and that that was where I was being led. And from there, though, I once I was able to, I'd always kind of wanted to live over in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, had a lot of friends over here. And at the time, for police officers, it was hard to, to make a living um, in some of your smaller agencies. And I wanted to get to a bigger agencies with, with more opportunity to grow. And luckily, uh, God continued to lead me and got me to the Arlington Police Department, where I joined in 2005. And have been here ever since. So coming up in September will be 20 years 
for for me as a police officer. And um, most of my time with Arlington, uh, I've I've been either a detective or now a sergeant over an investigative unit. So investigations has really been been my life's work a, as a police officer. Okay, Tariq. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my background is a little different. Um, you know, I, I'm originally from Bosnia. So uh, one thing growing up in kind of the war, one thing I always found comfort in is uniform and police. Those people felt, uh, made me feel safe. Uh, I moved to the United States in uh, to 1999 when I was 11. Um, and one thing as I was growing up, going through a school system here in Arlington, one thing I was always passionate about is wanted to give back to the community and serve the community where I live at here in Arlington. Um, so when I graduated college, I joined Arlington PD back in 08. And uh, a little different than uh, Grant's path, my, I held different positions uh, in my career here at Arlington. Uh, from most of them were in a uniform capacity, not investigations. Um, as I had a ambition to promote and be, become a leader in the department, um, I, I was debating where, do, what field do I want to go into? And one one field that absolutely stuck out to me was the Crimes Against Children Unit. Because I felt, you know, I want to serve this community and what better way than serve the the most vulnerable population, our children. And so not only was it was that something that drew me to this uh, position, but then uh, on the second, it was a second angle is it's a challenging unit to manage. Yeah. It's a big unit. And so it uh, allowed me to grow. And um, so you absolutely got into the Crimes Against Children unit as a sergeant and then transitioned into the field of human trafficking, as we saw here in our community, and just on a national level, a need for that. Um, and so now I hold this position where we investigate both child exploitation, human trafficking. Um, but so yeah, that, that's kind of how it led me from the beginning to now, my purpose, why I'm here is just wanting to serve these victims mm -hmm. and, and um, you know, do what I can to my detect for my detectives to put them in a most advantageous position. Very cool. And uh, Grant, the the current position you have, can you kind of give us the, the structure behind that? Uh, what is the mission and, and kind of, you know, I've seen all this, you know, the structure of it and, and the amount of full-time people on it. And what, can you give the, just an overview of the structure and what you're trying to do from a day-to-day? -day? Yeah, and Jeff, uh, our unit, the Crimes Against Children's unit, uh, we handle what what I refer to as the more traditional child abuse cases. Okay. We handle any felony level physical or sexual child abuse. So anything on a sexual abuse side of things, any sexual acts committed against someone under the age of 17 uh, here in Texas, that can be from inappropriate touching to full-on sexual assault. Um, and then on the physical abuse side, anyone 14 or younger who is physically assaulted and injuries caused. Uh, a lot of our cases involve serious bodily injury to babies and toddlers, all the way up to handling inappropriate discipline type cases with your older kids. Um, our unit's made up of 11 full-time detectives. We have one part-time detective, and then we have two civilian employees that that help with runaways and uh, and other clerical duties here here with our unit. And then we have two sergeants. So um, the two units that we're going to discuss today, we're going through a a transition right now. We just recently split into the two units, but traditionally here we handle about 1,400 uh, felony child abuse cases a year. And um, 
So very busy. Our detectives all carry caseloads, uh, anywhere 30s to 40s um, active cases at, at any one time. And uh, so so very, very busy. And I'd spent nine years as a detective in the unit before moving on to, to homicide years ago and just came back, um, I guess, about a year and a half ago as a supervisor. And it's just an area where I've always felt a, a calling and and it's a part that I didn't want to go a full career without having worked in in this field and try to do what I could to to help these victims like uh, my partner here said is the most vulnerable victims in our society and what I have found is I believe it's it's one of the biggest trouble areas in our society so it's something we take a, a lot of a lot of honor, and we're very humbled that these victims trust us to try and help them, and it's something that we fight towards every day. And Tariq, um, your your position is a, a little bit different than his. You're, you're more focused on the, the human trafficking side. Can you uh, just get, kind of give an overview of what your department does and what your day-to-day or, or what your mission is, rather, is a better question? Absolutely. So our mission is to focus on human trafficking, both the child and the adult victim. Mm-hmm. Um, and along the, the lines of human trafficking, we also investigate child exploitation. Now, that is a blanket statement, right? It entails and includes many offenses. We investigate everything from child possession of child pornography and promotion of child pornography to online solicitation of minors. And what we have learned is that under the child exploitation umbrella, we see a lot of crossover that goes into the trafficking, uh, everything from grooming, everything from exploiting victims online that carries over to contact offenses in person. Uh, when we formed this unit, it was important for me and our agency to see that we keep those together, human trafficking and child exploitation. We operate on both a proactive and a reactive approach. Um, so we do plenty proactive operations out in the field uh, and then certainly reactively. If uh, our patrol officers contact us, we respond to the field and begin the investigation. If it's uh, if it's maybe Child Protective Services contacting us, it could be an anonymous tip coming in. But then the last piece that we do is community awareness. You know, as, as human trafficking that continues to grow and it continues to become I don't want to necessarily say a buzzword, but it's it's certainly flooding our media. It is important that we serve our community and prepare our community to recognize it. So a big portion of our unit is that, is, is just going out there to various different um, community events and just talking about it. Uh, we're formed as a unit of five full-time detectives and myself as a supervisor of the unit. Um, and I think it's important to mention four of those detectives focus strictly on case investigations, while my fifth detective is strictly working on um, forensic analysis. In today's age, uh, Jeff, as you probably know, everybody has a cell phone, and uh, the criminal mindset is they're going to conduct their criminal activity on their cell phones and computers. And, and, And as we look into the internet crimes against children era, man, that is just so, um, so demanding that we have a expert that can take a cell phone and do an extraction and give me the data that I need to make a successful case. So um, that is kind of how we're formed. Um, and we we lead everything from a victim-centered approach. Because as Grant talked about this, um, I mean, I came from the Crimes Against Children unit previously. Mm-hmm. Um, we work under the multidisciplinary umbrella, but 
I believe the reason we're so successful is we, we focus on the victim. And and I think if you put the victim first, at the end of the case, you're going to you're gonna have a, a lot of success. Well, you just touched on a lot of stuff that I plan to ask about. So uh, that, <clears throat> that was great. But so my, uh, my involvement in this began when I learned about the problem, the size of the problem, and just how big it is. And as we were discussing uh, before we started recording, um, <clears throat> you know, society doesn't know. Um, it's not clued in on just how awful this is, how grand it is in scale. Um, and I think the the education uh, it needs to be there, but we also have to find ways to talk to people that don't want to hear about it. And, I, and I've, I've, so I've spoken to people, and I can see them their eyes glossing over, and they're kind of uh, shrieking back a little bit because it's an incredibly tough subject. And so um, – I guess the first question, I'll, and I'll ask both of you, you both can answer and throw in your answer and answer there, but, but Tariq, uh, what would you, you know, the people that are, you know, that don't know anything about this or, or haven't even thought about human trafficking, how big is it? How big of a problem is it? Well, Jeff, it's big. And I think what, what makes human trafficking so dangerous, especially as we talk about it here in 2023, is um, it's often, and I always mention this when I have the opportunity to talk, it's a crime that hides in plain sight. And what I mean by that is um, internet has taken over. And what we have seen is these suspects utilize the internet and social media platforms and various websites where they can conceal and hide behind these electronic devices. You know, I'm not saying we don't see victims walking the streets and being forced into walking what they call the blade or a strip and, and forced into sex trafficking there. It certainly happens, especially in bigger cities. But what we have seen here in our local communities is it's all done online. And so I think unless law enforcement intervenes, it's not going to get stopped. So it, it is big. It's it's a, There's a magnitude of that uh, by just the purity of it being concealed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as as we see movies, as we see TV, and as we see shows <clears throat> talking about trafficking, it is our responsibility on the investigative side to educate our, our community. And so to make sure we have a understanding of what it is, it is not always that victim that's chained to a bed. Mm -hmm. Some of our victims go to school, mm -hmm. they go to work, and then they're forced to return back to their trafficker. And I think that's a very real possibility it can happen. Yeah, the uh, one thing I learned very quickly was that the the you know the scene from the movie Taken where the girl is walking down the street and a van pulls up and throws a pillowcase over her head is really not how it works. It's uh it's a long grooming process and it's done very manipulative and it's done very uh, with, a, with a strategy right it's it's to it's to groom them over time it doesn't happen immediately and um, you know next thing they know they're in the life and they it's almost impossible to get out um <clears throat> grant you know we you know we read a the information today that is when the, when the grooming starts and when when the when the uh, I guess the age of these uh, young girls, for the most part, young girls, but uh, you know, from what I understand, it's it's rising with young boys as well as as in, in, the, in the new society. What do you think? Um, <clears throat> how to answer this? You know, it, it goes all the way from but uh, babies. Let's be honest, and it's and it's a tough thing to say, but you know, the average age in Arlington for beginning of this problem what do you think it is i mean is it is it well and, and like you said the grooming will start very very young yeah the thing most people don't understand is 
for a lot of our victims, they don't know anything other than the cycle that they're in. So to them, they believe it's normal. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes, a lot of our cases, we don't get what what we refer to as outcries till much later when they're older and they're exposed to more things in the world and they realize that what they've gone through is not what normal childhood development is supposed to involve. Mm -hmm. Um, For us, a lot of our cases um, do start from the the moment kids can talk, from the moment kids are starting to develop uh, as toddlers, uh, the grooming will start. Um, Most of our cases will involve prepubescent kids. And as you mentioned, it's it's growing. The number of cases involving boys is growing. And I think it's always been there. I think what we're starting to see is society is starting to allow those kids to be comfortable in making outcries. I, I think those cases have always been there. It's just so many of, of our young men have grown up because of the stigma of it, and they've held it in yeah. all, you know, all their lives yeah. a, a lot of times. It's more embarrassing to them. It, it is. I think child abuse, the, the overwhelming issue of child abuse is the largest plague on our society, uh, even larger than drugs, in my opinion, because it's happening within our homes. It's happening in every aspect of our society. Uh, what percentage of uh, victims, um, perpetrators were re- relatives? A very high percentage, a very, very high percentage. Um, I don't have a number. It's been a while since I've checked some of the the national numbers. A lot of your child advocacy centers, much like the the building that we're in today, our, our CAC um, has those numbers that they can put out nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, in your in your hometown of, <laughs> of Houston, um, the Children's Assessment Center is a fabulous organization that that helps thousands and thousands of kids. And there, I know there's a lot of numbers available, but for us, the the majority of our cases, it's a known offender. Oftentimes, it, within their own, either their their home or their trusted circle of family and friends, and that is what makes it so hard. Is it's it's the people that you least expect. We have cases. We have cases in Arlington where it's the stranger danger, as I'm sure I grew up with stranger danger. I'm sure you yeah, did, too. And, and as someone who has been involved in cases like the Amber Hagerman case and, and different things, it's that's still a part of our society. But that is a very, very small piece of it. Um, child abuse spreads across any and all demographics within our society. It doesn't matter poverty or not, race sexual orientation, it doesn't matter what it is, child abuse happens. Uh, Tariq, do you think you have the resources you need? Uh, you know, you, uh, listening to what you said about your detectives, you got 30 to 40 active, and I might have been Grant said that, but 30 to 40 active cases per detective. Is that overwhelming? That sounds overwhelming. Well, it certainly does, um, and I, I think it's fair to say it is. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, just like any agency, I think our agency tries to put a us in a in a point a position to be successful, you know. Uh, in this position right now, in my in my current role, um, we're evaluating those bases daily, right, mm-hmm. uh, monthly and quarterly, and seeing how are we managing these cases. And it, it is my responsibility to to gauge the proactive efforts to ensure that the uh, imagine imagine cases being 
served into you on a platter where now you have to serve every one of those victims. And if you keep taking on more and more and more, well, what you're doing is you're putting those other victims behind and you put them and pushing them back. And that does us no good, right? So we need to ensure that we're focusing and serving every one of those victims, which in result represents every one of those cases. Um, I'm the kind of guy that will always say, give me more, right? Yeah. Because to me, I the more I can receive on, on, a, on a resource level, that means I can serve more victims and I can put more bad guys in jail. So I'll be the guy who always says that. I'll, I'll give me more. But I mean, I think with the trend that we're seeing, it's, it's a, there's, a, there's a rise in the crime. Uh, the internet alone, uh, you know, kind of will keep us busy. Um, so it's, we do what we, what we can, what we have. And I, I'm very fortunate to have a very talented group of detectives um, that are subject matters in this field. Mm. I didn't have to train any of these detectives. We we hit the ground running with this unit. Um, and I think at the end, that's what keeps them successful and keeps us afloat. Okay. So that's um, when I, I started this podcast two years ago. And one of the greatest benefits is learning how to listen. Because I used to be the guy that would uh, that would sit there and just wait for you to finish talking so I could say what I wanted to say. So now I'm a much better listener than I used to be. Now, you've mentioned the Internet three times. So that's obviously the crawl on your side. Um, and that was something I was going to ask you about because one thing, I'm in addition to educating the public or who, you know, the listeners about the realities of this situation, also preventative measures and, and what to look out for. And, 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 you, and you listen to my uh, podcast with Dominique. Dominique gives great advice at the end of that podcast. And it was wildly deep communication with your children. Don't let anything be private. So <clears throat> what, yeah, I guess, you know, absolutely the online uh, and it changes a lot, right? And it's about to change even more with AI. And, and it, so being up to date on that and having people at the at the very forefront of, of that knowledge in your department is absolutely necessary, right? So um, your online activity, uh, what are some of the things um, that, that that's going on online? Like what 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 types of apps are uh, criminals using? What type of web pages uh, or anything I'm not even mentioning? What are they using out there to to draw young people into this into this? Well, Jeff, uh, when I say the internet, I think I speak for every single social media platform that exists to mankind. Mm. And um, as we speak, there's a developer creating a new one. Mm. Um, you know, when you focus on, and I'm not throwing these companies uh, or, or or these applications under the bus. I mean, it is uh, because social media is very powerful. I think it's if if used in the proper content and its intended use, I think it's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. But we have recovered victims, identified victims, and identified suspects in almost sing every single gaming platform out there and also social media platform out there. Um, it's it's just, it's as I mentioned, it's continuing to grow. Um, but you, we when we look at often, not only do we battle uh, social media platforms that we know to the big ones like Instagram, your Facebooks, um, Snapchats, and things along those lines. Um, you know, now there's internet phones, internet uh, voice over phones that we have oh, to look at. Mm -hmm. And yes, there's so much of that 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 what, what in result what that does for us is just slows us down because now we have to pay more legal process in order to get into those investigations. Um, the biggest thing I always encourage is. We need to make sure, especially for our youth, that parents have a good pulse on what their kids are doing online. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because if you think about it, that any platform online that whether the child is using uh, to communicate 
can potentially result in a child being a victim. And unfortunately, if you go back to 2020, when our kiddos were left at home, everybody was given a Surface Pro or a MacBook or some some form of communication device that they can continue learning on, on a distance level, um, it exposed victims even further. So it's it's a it's a growing trend, unfortunately. But um, again, we're working with our uh, with our folks and within various different task forces to kind of curb this problem, educate folks, educate parents, uh, to just ensure know what your kid is doing. And if you're an adult, let me show you what it looks like if uh, if you're being groomed and what 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 those dangers look like. I'm gonna I want you to expand on that in a minute, Bob. But first, I want to really I, I guess one. One thing you said there, gaming. I guess the old fuddy-duddies like me. That uh, how how is it happening through gaming? I don't think a lot of older people would understand that. Well, there's multiple different apps that you, your kids buy to game, and mm-hmm. whether it's um, it, let me put it this way, and the simplest way, because there's so many out there. One uh, one thing I will say, if if there's a way for a child to communicate with another child on through a text format on a gaming. It, you can even use a big platforms like PlayStation, mm-hmm. your, your Microsoft Xbox. If there's a means to communicate, often what we see is the grooming cycle begin there and they'll take it off of that platform, then they'll move it to a social media platform. Maybe the child will pr- produce the suspect with their Snapchat account and they'll go from Snapchat account and it will go over to a cell phone number. And so that's often what we see. We don't often see the criminality remain on the gaming sites too long, mm-hmm. but that's usually where it starts or where, that's where the offender meets the victim. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That, so that, that's, that's kind of the information I was looking to draw out because that I didn't know that about gaming. I guess I kind of figured it would happen amongst Instagram and things like that because, you know, they have access to you. And uh, I look at mine, you know, I've got a niece that's a teenager and preteen and, and she has an Instagram account and I'm sitting here, I've noticed myself looking going, okay, what, is there anything weird, you know, that I'm looking for here? And, um, uh, what, what, um, and, and, and Grant, this is, you can ask, answer this question as well. If it, if it pertains to you, what apps are, uh, are there some apps that are used more or is there something that you would particularly go, warn parents against? I always talk about the big ones because that, those are the most common ones, your Snapchats, your Instagrams, your Facebooks. I mean, we, we see that Facebooks aren't, Facebook, that platform itself is not very commonly used among teens as much, but Snapchat is one of the bigger, more popular ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I really say Warren, I mean, I, these are some great platforms, right? Mm-hmm. But used appropriately. Yeah. Uh, you know, Grant talked about stranger danger before. Mm-hmm. And I think stranger danger is still something we need to educate our children on. But I also tell parents, well, when you let your teenage kiddo or even younger go into the bedroom with your cell phone, you're almost inviting that stranger into that bedroom every single night. You just have to make sure that you're supervising that. And those platforms are great. If there's no control, no oversight, it can become dangerous very quickly. We have seen those things escalate from meeting meeting the offender the same day to already being plans being made to meet in person the same day. And um, because these guys, these suspects are so good at finding the vulnerability out of these victims. And and one thing I would say that a lot of people don't realize, a lot of these different online apps and online sites the companies are not based in the United States. Now, as someone that travels the world the way you do, you know that 
not all laws are the same as in the U.S. So from an investigative standpoint, a lot of times it's it's hard for us because some of these companies don't have to uh, abide by our search warrants and our legal process. So a and lot of consent is probably different. Yes, it's it's very different. And so from an investigative standpoint, being able to obtain a lot of the information is oftentimes harder with some of these sites because they're in in a different country and and going by a different set of laws and it makes it very difficult. Okay, I'm going to look into that uh, on my own to see which countries they're if they're targeting certain countries so they can avoid you know because our diplomatic relations matter, right? And if it's a country like if it's England or Switzerland, of course we can get a lot of feedback from that, but if it's some of these uh, third world countries that don't necessarily have a lot of uh, government relations with ours, it must be tough to get it out of there. The the hardest thing, much like we said earlier, you know, there, there's a lot of these companies that spend a lot of money and a lot of efforts with their law enforcement side. There's, you know, a lot of them work great with us. They do everything they can uh, to provide assistance. But as soon as, as one company becomes harder for the abuser, mm. a new company is ready, a new site, a new app yeah. is ready to to come into the fold. So it's something that the hard part for us is making sure our detectives are trained and up to date on all the new trends. And uh, it's it, that's a never ending cycle. Yeah. Uh, do you guys do proactive and like, uh, <clears throat> you know, I guess the only thing I could think to to even compare it to was the you know the, the Chris Hansen is it Chris Hansen TV show? Yes. Do you guys do things like that? We don't on our side. Um, there's a lot of over the time that I've been involved with with child abuse investigations, a lot of things similar to that. Um, there's been problems at prosecution, really? yeah. you know, and um, I'd imagine the the big thing for us, our our detectives know when they come to work that we have two expectations for them. If you ask any of our detectives what the expectation is for them today, they will tell you that they know they have to do anything and everything that they possibly can for the victims in our cases. That's number one. If CPS needs help, you help them. If our counselors that are working with the kids after they make outcries, if they need help, you help them because that's what helps each victim overcome the trauma that they've suffered. And the second expectation is you have to put offenders and abusers in prison and you have to put them in prison for decades. That's the way we keep them from abusing the next generation. And so it's very important for our detectives to be able to win in court and so that we put a premium on that. And I, I'm very lucky. We're all very lucky here that we have some phenomenal detectives. Some of the, the most veteran and experienced detectives in this department are right here in the Crimes Against Children's Unit. And um, the the easy part for us is to let them go work their cases because they do do great work. The hard part, you know, we mentioned caseloads and things earlier is wanting to make sure that they're still whole for for their families. I'm going to get to that. So, I'm going to I'm going I'm to ask that question here in a little yeah. bit. So whole, uh, table that. Uh, yeah. uh, one question I do want to ask you: um, <clears throat> what um, what would you t- tell? Um, I guess how would you tell? What would you tell parents to? You know, so you're you're more about child victims. You, uh, Tariq, you're more focused on trafficking. What grant would you tell parents to look out for? Because like we said. 
uh, the numbers I've seen is something between 80 and 90 percent or someone in the, someone in the know, a family member or someone mm-hmm. that's the perpetrator. What uh, what would you tell parents to look for as far as signs that this is going on? First off, we have to get past the stigma of talking about sex with our kids, talking about abuse with our kids. Um, statistical data will tell you if if your kids go to school, if your family attends a church, if your kids play an extracurricular activity, you are around both child abuse victims and child abusers on a daily basis. Daily basis. You're, you're around them all the time. They're in every – it doesn't matter if you are very wealthy and go to a very good school or if you're, you know, dealing with poverty and you're, you're in a lower income area. You deal with these issues. So what I would tell parents – and I'm in the same position as a parent right now with the age of my kids to uh, – you have to have conversation. You – much like some of your guests in the past have talked about, nothing can be off limits. You, and, and you can't make jokes about it or things. You have to refer to parts of your body that are private. You have to refer to um, boundaries within both your family and outside your family. And your kids have to know that if someone is talking to them about something inappropriate or making them feel uncomfortable, that they have to feel like they can come to you um, so you can prevent these things from happening. But first, we have to accept that this is the world we live in mm-hmm. and and that our kids are vulnerable. Exactly right. This is you can't you can't battle the world you hope or wish you lived in. It's the world we actually live in. And in God bless my parents, they did not talk about sex either. Yeah. At all. And so I know they loved me and I know they were great humans, but you're right. Most people don't. And and if my parents would have come to me and and even approach sex, it would have I would have come out of my skin. I mean, it just didn't it just didn't work. So, uh, yeah, you're right. That's uh, again, but you know, my first interview, Dominique, she gives a lot of advice about that, and she says just that you got to talk about it all. Um, Tariq, as far as the, uh, the the trafficking, trafficking generally begins around average age of 14 years old, the grooming process, right? And so. As, you know, my question for Grant was more about the in-home abuse that, or or maybe school abuse or something like that from smaller children. My question for you is, children of the grooming processing age, what should parents be looking for as far as warning signs that that may be happening? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it all starts with, I think, monitoring some of the inappropriate language and what's what's being how it's being discussed and what what is your what is your child talking about online and i think as uh, anybody that's a parent can look at how they may have a standard on what they, they they deem to be appropriate or inappropriate language by their child or what they're using you know jeff when we look at back in the day when we were in school and grade school uh, i think it was appropriate to exchange little love notes with girls and and small little messages we passed around the classroom until the teacher catches you right Mm -hmm. well now what we see is um since every child has a cell phone in the classroom now we see nude images being shared amongst the students and that is a growing issue that we're seeing in in schools um, that is something that we're seeing not just in schools, but outside of schools when kids are what they believe to be meeting somebody online um, to be somebody their same age. But in reality, that perpetrator is falsifying to be a 14-year-old girl or boy. They're actually a 50-year-old male somewhere else. 
And unfortunately, we see a lot of extortion when these victims do start sharing images, nude images. Uh, that's when they will start uh, threatening the child for monetary uh, funding. If you don't send me money, I'm going to expose all these images. So that is a uh, there's an uptick in that now. And uh, so kind of back to your question, I, I think the big thing is, is, as I mentioned this previously, is we need to ensure that we're keeping an eye on their platforms, these social media platforms to text messages. But the key is having an open relationship with your child, talking to them. If your kid comes to you and says, mom or dad, I did something I wasn't supposed to do. I shared some inappropriate images. Although we know as a parent, I think you, you, you would just want to twist off and be so upset and so hurt. The importance is to understand that your child did something very courageous. They own their mistake mm. and they're hurt. They're a victim yeah. for being exploited on, on that regard. So report that crime and let us begin investigating it and let us see if we can find some resources for your kiddo so this doesn't happen again. Um, I think it's, it's just having those open discussions. Uh, you know, we always talk about, um, you know, 16-year-olds, now they're t it's time for them to start driving. We don't just toss them a set of brand new keys to a brand new car and be like, hey, go drive. We don't. They, they learn how to drive. They learn what a car is, how to brake, how to accelerate, how to turn. There's, In fact, there's classes for that. Social media needs to be treated the same way. Anything online needs to be treated the same way. We need to educate our kids. Parents need to sit down and tell them, okay, so I'm going to allow you to be on social media, but these are the parameters. And have that trust with their children to be able to uh, experience it, but with some boundaries. Is there, and, and this may be a laughable question to you as both as parents, but is there some type of... Um, you know, monitoring phones is, is, I mean, are parents uh, somehow able to see everything that comes to a phone? Is there something that allows that in the computer as well, right? Um, is there some kind of app or program that you recommend? There, there won't be anything that will control everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think there are um, some parental controls, but I think if, uh, if somebody with the, with the intent to over, overcome those uh, uh, blocks, so to speak, they can over. Kids are smart nowadays, let's be yeah. honest, and they, they know how to circumvent that process. There are various different apps, uh, apps on, on the online that parents can call, uh, research and get on and install in, a, install in a kid's phone, but they're only as good as that relationship between a child and a parent, right? Because they can get a new phone and the parent doesn't know about that and it does nobody any good. Mm -hmm. They can create a new app, uh, app their new username. And so there's, there's a lot of that, I think the biggest control or let me, let me rephrase that uh, the biggest oversight is an open and honest communication with your child um, and building building the blocks from there yeah i, I hope parents that are listening and, and actually interested in how they can do better or, or have li are listening to the series that's a theme i mean that's mm -hmm. it it ain't it, it's not like you said there's always going to be a new app and uh but the communication that's that in, the, in removing the stigma of speaking about sex to your children, and, and that Grant, I too have read uh, the uh, stats on that. Mm -hmm. Not just um, not just in that single instance of uh, you know abuse, but also it it develops a better adult more more often than not. Like they're they're much more responsible mm -hmm. sexually as they grow into adults if there's an open communication with your parents about right. it. Right, and I think just in general. Our kids, their knowledge is so much more advanced right now. They've been exposed, whether in, in 
in healthy, not criminal aspects. They've just been exposed to so much more in the world. Pornography. Pornography. TV is different. Everything's different now. Uh, it's it's something that the the slippery slope has has gone a lot farther. And for me, I grew up in a small town where every one of my friends, our parents had grown up friends, our grandparents were even friends. And so you couldn't go anywhere or do anything without being around people that knew you well, knew your parents. And, you know, for me, having a father in law enforcement, it was just something I was always used to. And I, and I was sheltered. I didn't realize how sheltered I was until I got out of my hometown and, and saw different parts of the world and people from different areas. But now, you know, I, I've got a, my oldest is of an age where he's one of the few in his group of friends that doesn't have his own cell phone, and he, he thinks it's terrible. Um, but I just am not going to allow that until I know that he's aware of the responsibility that, you, that comes with having a chance to communicate with people all over the world. Yeah. And, Go ahead, Trey. You know, Jeff, you mentioned earlier well, one question you had about some of the proactive um, measures that we may take here in Arlington, mm -hmm. and one of them you brought up was to Chris Hansen, I believe you're referring to How to Catch a Predator. Yeah, yeah, yes, sir. yes. One sir. of the things on my side of the house and in, in our unit we do, we do those proactive operations. And one thing I always find amazing when we go and portray ourselves in, in, in the undercover role as a child, uh, when we begin interacting with adults, Okay, that are that are seeking out a child to have sex with, mm -hmm. we learn a lot from that, and we learn a lot from that on in our platforms like that when we invest uh, when we conduct these chats, just so we see where the mindset is at. What we learn often is these suspects and how cautious they are. Uh, they obviously they try to think multiple steps ahead from in, in, in an attempt to prevent from being caught. So often when we can go back to the community and speak to parents and educate them, hey, this is what to look for. Uh, the vulnerability aspect I mentioned earlier is one, but it's, again, always ties back to being having that conversation with your child and having some kind of control when they're home alone. Often than not, we portray ourselves to be home alone. And and you, the suspects, the way they engage us about, uh, well, how, how, does your mom monitor your phone? Is your mom going to see what you're saying right now? Make sure you delete these uh, messages immediately. So the, 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 those levels so of pernicious. grooming, yeah, right. and they're, they're always thinking ahead. And that that's, we, I mean, we, we learned that, unfortunately, from from real suspects. Now, we're fortunate that they're talking to an undercover police officer, not an actual victim. Mm -hmm. But it is, we need to take those steps every single time and then continue building and educating to almost, almost like getting in the mindset of those suspects and seeing how we can prevent that. And I'm sure, uh, and Grant, I think you were hinting at this, but the the increased sexualization of children in society probably mm -hmm. is damaging your efforts quite a bit because it's becoming, you know, there's there's people out there trying to make it normal. Well, I mean, and it's much. just going to keep going in that direction. So, uh, and 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 also, I think, uh, and I think you guys would agree, the uh, as far as the victims, and we're talking about parents, you know, talking to their children and. That's from good homes. Most of these victims don't come from good homes because they're easier targets to right. to manipulate and to groom. Right? Would, would you guess like uh, of the of the of the, I guess of the well, I guess this is more more tree question, but of the um, the amount of trafficked young uh, young men and women 
what percentage of you do you think they come from broken homes or or, or, or in situations where abuse already exists? Oh, it's very high. I, yeah. I, I, it would be it would be hard for me to put a number on it, but it is certainly high. Mm-hmm. And the uh, from the often uh, we see our victims coming from foster homes from where they've been placed somewhere, mm-hmm. and um, it, it's the cycle where the you know they're awarded to the state, and it's like you mentioned broken homes. But I mean, you know, it, it's uh, always always get asked like about what's one thing that we need. Well, we need a lot more good foster parents, and patient foster parents, and foster homes. You know, that is one thing that we need. Uh, you know, writing a check on something doesn't always solve, equipment doesn't solve my problems. It's just we need more and better homes. Uh, so you're absolutely right, Jeff, there is that. Uh, but you've also mentioned that it can happen in a good home. It mm-hmm. can happen in, in a, Grant mentioned on this earlier, it's, it's both child abuse and human trafficking. Those types of crimes don't discriminate. Mm-hmm. I've, I've gone to small towns where it's like, no, it's impossible. It doesn't happen here. And I'll log in and I'll show them multiple active ads, sex ads, where I believe that those are trafficking victims. Yeah, I learned um, Backpage. Yes. I've heard that from two different yep. people I've talked to as, a, as, a, as an organization or as a website that's very much involved in that. And that's what it's, it's kind of used as a, a, a conduit to, to make that happen. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> again, Tariq, you're, you love to answer my questions that I was going to be coming up with. Um, both of you, um, and, and I, I realize you people, you, both of you gentlemen, you work for the, the, the government, right? And so if this is a question you really can't be honest about, please feel free. But, uh, what is, um, you mentioned foster, uh, needing foster homes. What, um, what is the greatest thing that's kind of damaging your efforts and what do you need the most to make your efforts better? That is a question where it's it's about listing all the things and prioritizing mm. what's what's at the top of the list. Um, I think you have to understand how many of these cases, when you look at it within the family dynamic for us, it's a cycle that's gone through generations. Mm. So having an real quick, I'm sorry, yeah. I, I, I'm, so I don't forget this question. Uh-huh. Do you find that victims often become perpetrators? Is that real? I I, I think there's a, a an argument to be made there. I I don't. Let me say this: nowhere near do all victims become perpetrators yeah. at all. Um, I will tell you that over the last fifteen years, I don't know how many thousands of child abusers I've I've interviewed and talked with. But a theme that happens a lot is they will. One of the things we we talk with them about is we we allow a minimization of of their intent, okay? Oftentimes, they want to explain that they weren't trying to hurt the child is how these conversations start. Um, it's very common for us to get into any abuse that the the offender had suffered as a child. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they detail uh, abuse within their home and abuse towards them. But I will tell you, Jeff, in all of these thousands of conversations, not once have I ever had an offender tell me they were abused as a kid and they didn't know it was wrong then and they knew what they were doing to a child as an offender. They knew it was wrong what they were doing. They they understand and accept that what happened to them was wrong and then they've made the choice to continue that cycle against 
another child. Um, and so it comes back to acknowledging not the world we wish we lived in, but the world we actually live in. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier a lot of the kids that come from broken homes. That's why our teachers are so important. Mm-hmm. Our school uh, officials God, are so that, important. I think about that. I bet they're uh, really helpful in the we, front line we, of this. We get a, a large number of our outcries come towards school staff, mm-hmm. comes to, uh, from um, people that are involved in extracurricular activities for kids, coaches, and band directors, a lot, lot of different areas. But what we have to to do, oftentimes, the process is not played out the way we need it for us to be able to, to address the issues with those kids, help them with the trauma they've suffered, and then also be able to prosecute. We're in the business of prosecuting people that that prey on kids. So I think educating, having a plan in place. Um, we have some organizations here locally that I know they do extensive backgrounds, um, background checks with anyone that's going to be around their kids. They have plans in place where even if if you as a parent are teaching or around a group of kids, you're not even able to be alone with your kid while at their facility. And some people think that's extreme, but here's the good part of it. If someone is coming to that organization with ill intent, they're going to move on. They're going to see that they have a plan in place to do everything they can to prevent a a subject who's preying on kids mm-hmm. from entering the doors. And that is important. And then understand people think that kids lie about these types of things and that if they say they were abused, they must just not understand. And so oftentimes they don't report what kids tell them. What I have found throughout all, all my years is the number one thing that a child needs to be able to overcome the trauma that they've suffered is for one person to believe them, just one person to believe them and to help make them safe. So if a child comes to you, it doesn't matter if you're a teacher, if you're working at the Starbucks and a kid tells you that someone is is trying to hurt them or that someone is being inappropriate, just tell them I believe you and try to help make them safe in that moment. And kids are very resilient. You know, um, in my, in, in, I learned from the, uh, the I guess the process and of, of recovery from um, uh, an organization called the Redeemed House. It's a, it's a recovery home in Houston, and they taught me so much, you know, and it was eye opening. But uh, you know, one of the things I learned is that the trauma, the trauma, because of the, the the age of development when this begins, they don't really, they, they'll never. They don't teach them to try to get rid of the trauma. They can't. Mm-hmm. They, they teach them the reaction to the trauma, uh, but uh, but that takes mental health professionals. Yes. And I and I, I can't imagine we have enough. Jeff, the reason why earlier um, in our conversation I told you that I believe child abuse is the largest plague on our society is because of what you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. It stays with these kids long after the abuse stops. It affects how they raise their kids. It affects every relationship that they will ever have. And it affects their ability to go on with life. Um, I, I've taught 
law enforcement professionals, police officers all over the country. Um, and there has not been a single time, not one time, that I have taught a class to law enforcement professionals about child abuse where somebody in the class didn't either come up to me afterwards or call me on the phone and tell me how difficult it was because they were abused as a child and had never told anyone. And people are also um, people are also very worried to um, falsely accuse somebody. Very much. Right. That's a concern, mm-hmm. right? And so they don't want to – once – I mean, once your name gets attached to that, it's even if it didn't happen, it's hard to erase it, right? And so that's a that's always a tough thing to get over as well. I think if people knew more about the process, first off, it's not hard. I mean, it's 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 not it's a very hard process to prosecute somebody. Okay, and nowadays here in Arlington, and, and it's very similar to other areas across the country, we work in what's called a multidisciplinary team. So every child abuse case that comes in, there's a team of professionals, not just police, that work the various aspects. And our team is made up of law enforcement, Child Protective Services, the Child Advocacy Center, the Alliance for Children here, which is made up of your forensic interviewers, your counselors, your support resource staff, um, Cook's Children's Medical Center in Fort Worth, our care team there, our medical professionals, and then the the district attorney's office. We all work together. We staff every case together. We get various opinions on all of these aspects and then come to a, a decision on how to move forward. And so the biggest thing is if a child comes to you and says that they've been abused or they've been hurt, understanding that your role is not in that judge. moment to judge and decide what happened. It's to protect that child and let them know that someone is there and wants to simply make them safe. Mm-hmm. And then you have a lot of professionals that will will check into that and, and determine. But first, we have to accept that we have to do that because these things are happening all around us. As far as needing more resources, we absolutely there's so much more we could do and so much more that we must do to protect our kids. Uh, Tariq, uh, where does DFW rank as far as nationally, globally, as as a a hotbed for uh, trafficking? Well, it's very popular only because uh, we're kind of in the heart of Texas, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the major arteries that travel through up and down, you know, east and west, um, we often find uh, victims from multiple states across Mm -hmm. uh, both north and south. And so I think um, as a as you probably know, Jeff, these victims and their perpetrators and their suspects and in the trafficking game, they travel, they travel. And that's why when I mentioned, you know, you may be living in a small suburb town and near DFW and you may be in denial that this is happening. Well, I can tell you it is happening in your towns because as these tra- uh, traffickers travel with their victims, they get tired of driving. So they're going to crash the first motel that they see. And they may be a small town, a very small population. Um, big, big metroplexes um, like DFW uh, attract that kind of uh, business because um, the demand, right? We we have a demand of Johns uh, going onto these various websites and wanting to hire, you know, sex workers. Mm. And if we didn't have the demand, we wouldn't have a trafficking problem. Sure. And so that is uh, it is one of our focuses. We mm-hmm. focus on the demand suppression. We want to keep these suspects accountable um, because it is a crime and it is a felony crime in Texas. Um, and so 
anytime you have big metroplexes, the areas like DFW, Houston, and then if you go far on the East Coast, you know, Miami's, they're, they're going to be large. And I mean, it's um, bigger cities. Obviously, that's what Grant mentioned earlier. Bigger cities do have uh, resources in place to combat these um, uh, cases and investigations. Uh, we're fortunate because... Here in DFW, not only do we have a multitude of task forces that we are part of here in Arlington that we rely on heavily to combat trafficking, but we have a lot of uh, nonprofit organizations that also pour out their heart and souls to serve these victims. And really, none of this would be possible, Jeff, without those people, without of our awesome task force partners, without of our uh, without our uh, awesome nonprofit organizations, our advocates. Because I can sit here and talk to a victim all day long about um, what just happened to them, it will never be as powerful as if I'm sitting in the room, myself, a detective, and now an advocate, mm-hmm. somebody who, a survivor, who's been in their shoes before. You know, it, it's going to be, it's going to trump everything I have to say because that person next to me has experienced it. And so as, as bad as it sounds that we have a rise here in the DFW, we're also uh, situated and equipped with the proper resources to combat that. Do you uh, get cooperation from federal agencies? Yes, sir. So one of the um, task forces that we are part of is I have two detectives that are part of uh, their task force officers on with Homeland Security Investigations. So we're intertwined with, uh, with with the federal organization like in that regard. And that allows us a lot of good things, right? Because it not only allows us to take cases on a state level, to prosecute them that way, it allows us to prosecute cases on a federal level. And we kind of pick and choose. We work and staff cases with our partners to see which is the best way we can proceed forward with this case to get the maximum punishment and have the most successful result at the end. So HSI has been a phenomenal partner of ours. Great, great. Um, I, I, we're going to pretty be close to wrapping this up because I know you guys got to get to work. Uh, you both have children, right? I do not. Okay, so I do. Uh, so you do, and um, we. But, but you know, I don't either. But we, you and I, still understand, Tariq, that uh, crimes against children is the most heinous in the world, right? And so uh, you guys have to, you and your investigators, have to see this from a day to day basis. How? Uh, and I grant, I'll, I'll let you answer this first. How do you personally maintain um, a, a good mental? outlook and, and 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 not let this kind of wear on you too much i don't know how to describe it but you know what i mean how do, how do you prevent it from yourself and how do you help your uh, officers from 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 having that happen to them yeah and and jeff i think i do better today than i did 10 10 years ago mm-hmm. um you know learning how things affected me um i think for me I, i've been very blessed to have my family, um, to have my faith, uh, having my my church family has always provided me a lot of a lot of strength. Um, the you know the the things that that my wife has had to put up with and and deal with over the years is something that oftentimes gets lost in Absolutely. all of this. Um, the hours that we keep both in this unit and then for me, I spent uh, a number of years in the homicide unit and I was gone all the time. I was always working and was not home with my kids. And so the burdens that we put on our families are oftentimes very large. And as my family will tell you, sometimes the hardest thing is not when dad's gone, but when dad's home and still not fully there. Yes. And and that's what can be very 
hard to understand for for your kids and your families. Um, they will later in life. They will later. But they won't they right will. now. But you also, I think at this stage of my life, I realized how much I was missing. And mm. and that becomes very difficult to to deal. That's a, a burden that we have to bear. So for me, it, it was very difficult as a detective in this unit. I was a, a detective for nine years in the unit, um, was lead on thousands of cases. And the hardest part of that, I told you what our caseloads are. And we have more resources here than a lot of places do. Okay. I mean, our department has, has, has made crimes against children a priority over the years uh, to try and help this. But oftentimes the toughest decision is that you're having to prioritize, you're having to triage cases. And so every time you try to help a victim, there's someone else who's waiting for help that you're not getting to at that moment. And, and it that kills you inside, it does. It? it does. And our detectives, you know, when they wake up in the middle of the night, they know there's a victim somewhere mm. who who wants their help. That burden. And God. it's always there. So as coming back to this unit as a as a sergeant, as the the supervisor, one of the biggest goals I had was trying to help the detectives and making sure that we're keeping them whole for for their families. And I think, you know, we're asking more of our detectives, more of police officers in general than ever before. Um, it is harder to to do this job today than at any point in the history of, of police work, and especially of child abuse investigations. Um, it's very difficult. And for our detectives— you know, I, I tell them all the time, it's their job to work on behalf of the victims, and I believe it's my job to work on behalf of them right. and, and try to make sure that our decisions are pointing them in in a direction that we think they can do the most good and then accepting some of that burden that they feel, letting them know it's not all on them. It's decisions that we're making to lead them in a direction and— uh, that they're doing all that they can do. We could always do more. Yeah. You know, you know, um, what you guys are is sin eaters. You've, you've heard of that before? Sin eaters? That's what you are. You, you have to take on that burden for other people so you can protect other people. You take it on, and that's remarkable. Tariq, same question for you. How do you uh, deal with seeing the, the awfulness and the, and the horrific things that you see, and how do you help your people to, to cope with that? Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, you kind of mentioned earlier, I, I don't have any kids, right? Mm. So I, I'll view things from a different perspective. Mm. But I have obviously nieces, I have cousins, yeah. I have young family members. We touched on this earlier. You may not be a parent, but you're around kids all the time, absolutely. right? And I mean, those are your motivating forces to go out there and do a good job to lead a team and serve your community. Uh, one thing on a personal level that kind of keeps me grounded the most is my wife. She's just as a heart of gold. Uh, mm -hmm. She's a servant mindset. And so when it's a one o'clock in the morning call out or if I'm missing dinner or if I'm the phone is constantly ringing. She understands because she knows there's a greater good behind that. Yes, she'll miss me for a couple hours or maybe a day, but I'm out there doing something that she also is fully vested in helping. Um, you know, and for our detectives, uh, you mentioned this, and that is so important because I'd argue that in law enforcement, uh, policing, it could be a patrol officer, you may drive up to the first fatality accident and you see that body, that is terrible. That is something that will be ingrained for you for the rest of your life. 
Uh, but when you escalate that another level higher, now you're dealing with this type of content that is so sensitive. Uh, my detectives are exposed to very sensitive content like, like child pornography. I mean, some of the most horrific images and videos you can probably imagine. It is, it is, um, it is somebody that wants to be in this position has a major passion to stopping it, and that is what I'm dealing with. Those types of detectives, um, I always make a point to thank their family members for allowing their, uh, all, uh, you know, peers. I'm sorry, their spouses to come over here and and uh, serve, mm -hmm. serve and allow me to lead them, because they're also gone and work long hours. Our department has done um, an incredible job, Jeff, to have resources available. And I think that's, that not only for supervisors, but for our first-line uh, detectives um, to recognize those early intervention if something is not right, mm -hmm. you know, because we want to ensure that we have the best cadre of detectives here to serve those people, serve, serve our community. And, you know, it's okay to have a bad day. Uh, we just need to be able to have a door wide open, arms wide open approach. Hey, come and talk to me. Because when I go home, I know I have that with my wife. I have that with my family members. Mm -hmm. I know what I've overcome in my life to get where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. And so th those are the um, kind of what things that keep me grounded, okay. you know, uh, to give those kids another chance, another option. As we all know, life is all about uh, choices mm -hmm. and just kind of steering our youth and our adults to make those right choices. You know, uh, being a veteran, I always make a post on Veterans Day, and I make very clear note to say, don't just think, thank the veteran. Thank the wives, the spouses, the, the children, because they served as well. And that applies to you guys as well. Your spouses and, and children are serving as well uh, because they're having to sacrifice you and your time in order to serve the, the community. And that's, that's important to, that they realize their sacrifice is important as well. And, and they're a part of it. Well, uh, gentlemen, that's all I, I had for you as far as questions. Uh, you two guys are, are, are public servants and, uh, and absolute heroes. Uh, I, I, I applaud the work you do. It's amazing. I'm so thankful for you. Society is so thankful for you. And uh, I thank you for, uh, you know, taking time out of your day. I know you got here pretty early for me this morning to, uh, to, uh, to give me your time and kind of help educate the public, which is what I'm trying to do with this series. So Tariq, Grant, thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having yep. us. And, and thank you for, for the platform you have and, and choosing to, to bring this topic to people and we we really appreciate it my pleasure yeah absolutely jeff thank you again and um you know be, the world needs more people like you so we yeah. appreciate what you do thank you thank you thank thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the show and accept the mission please subscribe to the mission zero podcast on your preferred streaming service and be sure to give us a five-star review